Hello, today I have Trevor with me. Hiya Trevor, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi everyone, I'm uh, Trevor Wood, the Newcastle-based uh, crime writer of um, the Jimmy Mullen series, which began with The Man on the Street. Uh, uh, was followed by One Way Street, and I have my third book in the series, and the final book in the trilogy, Dead End Street, coming out uh, on January the 20th. Uh, did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Sort of, I think. I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. Um, and primarily I wanted to be a journalist, I think. But I, my qualifications when I left school were, were just practically zero. I, I had basically two O-levels, or CSE grade ones as they were then, English and maths, and nothing else. I was absolutely terrible at every other subject, and also... You know, I, I'm not saying I got in with the wrong crowd. I, I just messed about too much. Um, so I didn't have the qualifications to do that. Um, and I ended up joining the Navy instead. But bizarrely, I joined the Navy as a writer. It's a branch in the Royal Navy. Um, it's like a cross between HR, admin and um, accountancy, if you like. So you do all the background stuff. Um, so I was a writer in the Navy for 16 years. I was a writer and a leading writer and a petty officer writer and a chief petty officer writer. Um, so I've been a writer for ages, but I, I never did any writing for a long time. Um, so it wasn't until I was kind of, uh, until I left the Navy and I had to find something else to do. I, I met and married a Geordie who made me move to Newcastle because she wouldn't move to Portsmouth, which was a very reasonable call if you've ever been to those two cities. Sorry, sorry, Pompey lovers, but it really is. Um, so I had to move to Newcastle and find a new way to make a living. And, and ironically, um, went back to journalism and I applied to do a journalism course because I got a lot more qualifications in the previous 15 or 16 years um, and became a journalist in my kind of mid thirties. Uh, and then spent about eight or nine years doing that and a bit of PR and stuff. Uh, and then turned to creative writing when a friend of mine suggested we tried to write a play together. Uh, still don't know why. I don't know why he thought we could write a play. Uh, but we wrote a play uh, and it did really well. And we, they, we then wrote about 12 more, um, which toured all over the world. Um, so, yeah, so I've actually been a creative writer for about 20 years now. That kind of aged me there, didn't it, really? It's, your secret safe for me, it's fine. <laughs> oh, I don't think it's a secret, on it. As a screen, people can see. <laughs> nah, you've not a day over 40. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> So what made you take the plunge and decide to go from writing plays to writing crime fiction? It had been, um, we had a brilliant run. I wrote with a guy called Ed Woff, um, an absolute, the most Geordie man I've ever met in my life. Um, and we had a fantastic time. I, I've, we managed to sell a lot of tickets for our first play because we'd both worked in the local media. So we had a lot of contacts. We made a lot of noise about it and we just sold lots of tickets and it did very well. So the theatre that, that put it on asked us to write another play. And um, we, we came up unbelievably with a play uh, called Dirty Dusting, which is about three elderly cleaning ladies who are threatened with redundancy. So they set up a telephone sex chat line um, and spend the last weekend at work running that chat line. Uh, and it's, it's never stopped playing. It's still playing 20 years later. It's still touring all over the country. It's, there's been Irish versions, Scottish versions, Australian versions. It's played and played forever. So on the back of that, we got to write about another 10 plays, which all did pretty well. 
toured all over the UK. So we'd had a great time, but it was getting harder and harder um, to get them on because most theatres are run by the local councils. And obviously the councils were having money stripped away from them on a yearly basis and quite rightly decided it was better to be looking after other areas of their city than ploughing money into, into theatre. Um, so it was getting harder to get things on, basically. It's much cheaper to take on a, a touring show, you know, so if the show's already up and running, it's much easier for a theatre to just fill their, their space with something that's out there rather than trying to start something from scratch because all the money in, in a theatre show is basically at the front end. It's in the rehearsal time and hiring the actors and doing all the work to set it up. So it just became harder and harder and we had to do it ourselves. So it became a bit like self-publishing, really. If we wanted to put a new play on, we were the ones who had to go out there and put our own money into it, book all the theatre space, hire the actors, hire all the techie stuff, plan the whole thing, do the publicity, you know, just literally everything. Um, so we we were becoming producers rather than writers. Uh, and we did it very successfully. The last play we did actually made us a decent profit. But I was spending all my time, you know, designing programmes and, and uh, talking to theatre bosses about how many days we could have and how much we were going to... And it just it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So I kind of stepped aside from it a little bit. I, I mean, Ed, Ed quite enjoyed doing that kind of thing. So he's still... Um, producing his own plays and they're doing reasonably well but I just wanted to write so I took a step back and thought well what am I going to write <laughs> and I've always been a big reader of crime books ever since I was a kid um, so it seemed the obvious way to go so that was why I, I decided to try and write a crime book. If you were to take out a character from one of your books for a meal, who would you take and what would you ask them? <laughs> I've got a very, I mean, I've got a very colourful bunch of characters. My books are set in the homeless community. So the, the main character is homeless. His two sidekicks are both homeless as well. Um, but they're surrounded by a bunch of colourful characters who do provide support and help them when necessary. necessary and... Um, I think Jimmy's um, probation officer is a foul-mouthed woman called Sandy, um, who almost seems psychic. She always knows exactly when he's done something he shouldn't. He's, um, he has to see her quite regularly because he's, he was in prison previously and he's on, released on licence, so it means that if he breaks the terms of his licence, he can be sent back to prison and he breaks the terms of his licence on a regular basis. And she appears to be a hard ass, if you like, but actually she lets him get away with a, with murder. Not Actually, I was going to say quite literally, but probably not quite literally, but almost. Um, and she's enormous fun to write, and it would be hilarious to go and have dinner with her, I think. Um, if you were to fictionally murder someone, how would you kill them? Well, I'd go to number 10 Downing Street, I'd knock on the door with a gun. <laughs> no, I've, I've always loved um, Patricia Highsmith's method in Strangers on a Train, getting somebody else to swap murders with somebody. I think it's almost foolproof, really, as long as you both keep your nerve. So I think I'd find somebody else who wants to murder somebody, and I know plenty of them, there's loads out there. 
uh, I, I'd find one of those and, and swap with them. And if you were fictionally murdered, who would you want to solve your case? <laughs> that is a good question. Gosh. I like my, let's go, I may as well plug my favourite um, procedural series, I guess. Um, although I'd have to move to Boston in, in, in the USA. So let's pretend I'm murdered in Boston. Uh, Dennis Lehane has a series with two detectives, Patrick Kenzie and Angie Gennaro, um, which are just superb. And I love the characters. Uh, and Patrick Kenzie is dogged as hell and won't give up on anything. So, so he'd be great. I don't know. You, I don't know if you've read any of them. There, there was a movie made out of one of them called Gone Baby Gone, which is also my favourite crime movie. Um, so check that out and then read all the books because they're brilliant. And they're, and I know as well that they're Mike. It's Mike Craven's favourite series as well. So, I'm in. I'm in good company thinking that. Um, you should read those. You really should. But check the movie out. It's great. It would have been a huge hit, but it's about a girl, a young girl who goes missing. And the girl is uncannily similar to Madeleine McCann, the way she looks. And so the film was held up for about two years. They couldn't release it for about two years because it was due out almost exactly the time as the Madeleine McCann stuff happened. So the film is nowhere near as well known as it ought to have been. Um, but check it out. It's, I think it's one of the best crime movies ever. Um, what unsolved uh, crime would you like your fictional characters to solve? Wow, in real life? Um, gosh. I mean, the Downing Street parties thing has pretty much been solved now, hasn't it? I think, I think we're probably... I think we all knew that. <laughs> I think... I think that's a done deal. I'm going. I'm, I'm going. To, I'm stuck in politics here, aren't I? I'm trying to think of a, a famous murder that I, I think hasn't been given due attention. No, I can't think of one. I, I, what I would like my detective to do is find out what Dominic Cummings was really up to when he went on his totally bizarre journey up to the northeast. Um, and then went to get his eyes. I can't remember. He got his eyes tested in Stockton. I have no idea what he was doing. I want to know what happened. So it's not a murder, but it's kind of close, isn't it? Really? I think, yeah, I think everyone would quite like to know the truth for that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need to know. Out of the books you've written so far, what's been one of the most fun scenes you've written and what's been the most difficult? There's been a lot of difficult scenes. They're quite, there's some quite dark moments. I mean, in each of the books, as well as telling a current crime story, I tell the backstory of how the three characters have ended up living on the streets. Um, so I tell Jimmy's story in the first book, his friend um, Dino's story, young drug addict in the second book. Uh, and in the third book, I tell the story of Gadge, who was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic. Um, so as you can imagine, there's, there's umpteen scenes in those books which are pretty tough to write. Uh, so it could be any of those at all. Um, even some very small, there's a scene where, I wrote a, a scene where Jimmy is in prison and his wife comes to visit him and tells him that she's found someone else and kind of breaks my, I do it as a reading sometimes and it breaks my heart, even now, like three years later. 
uh, it's so brutal. Uh, so that probably, I found that really hard to write. It's just too emotional. Um, as for fun scenes, uh, there's quite a few, bizarrely, even though it's quite a dark and gritty series. I'm trying to think of my favourite. I'm going to struggle. I'll come back to you, Don. I'll come back to you. Just give me a moment. I'll suddenly have a light bulb moment. Go. I'm going to pick. There's just too many for me to think of at the moment, but I will come up with something. Um, when you're editing, what's your most overused word or phrase? <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> Other people have used swear words before. It's fine. It, it absolutely is fuck, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> I do. And, uh, one of the final edits I do is to search for that word. And then I try and get rid of at least half of them. Um, and we're generally talking hundreds. It's, it's, uh, I mean, to be fair, I'm writing in, in the homeless community. It would be bizarre if they weren't swearing. Um, and there are lots of pretty horrible people that they come across as well. So it's almost inevitable. But I do appreciate that I overuse it terribly. Um, I overuse it terribly in real life as well. So it's not really a surprise. But I, I do do an edit and try and take out. I, I vow to take out half and I always do. But that still leaves an embarrassing number of them, I'm afraid. Uh, but at least I'm trying. You aren't the only one either, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, it's weird. If, if they're not in a crime book, it's quite weird to me. I, I mean, people are being murdered and violently attacked and they're not swearing. I, I have no idea what land they're living in. That's... No, me either. <laughs> Absolutely agree with that. <laughs> um, if you're able to spend a day with any author, dead or alive, who would you like to spend a day with? Oh, God. I'm, I'm going to, let's go real life. I, 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 I'm really good friends with Harriet Tice. We were on the UEA um, crime writing masters together right at the start of our careers. She wrote Blood Orange on the course that I wrote The Man on the Street on. Um, and we've been good mates ever since. Um, stay in a house quite often when I'm down in London. Um, uh, so so let's stick to what I know. Harriet's great company. So yeah, Harriet Tice. She's, she's nowhere near as dark as her books are. And neither am I, to be fair. I think Blood Orange is quite dark. <laughs> yeah, no, the books are dark, yeah. 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 Yeah, I have read that one. That yeah, was well, good. I, I, I was, you know, I was there as she developed it, and I kept going, "Really? You're going to do that? Oh my god! Okay." And yeah, yeah. great twist in that. Yeah, it's a terrific book. It's a terrific book. <clears throat> it is. Yeah, I read it years ago. Actually, well, not years and years, but a while, and I still remember. So yeah, it's a sign of a good book. Yeah, it came out in uh, 2018. I would. No, sorry, that's that's total nonsense. 2019. Oh, wow, big difference. <laughs> I think. You think? So I think. We'll go with that, 2019. I think it's 2019. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, sure, sounds good. I have no clue. My first Harrogate was in 2018, and I'd only gone because they were doing some... Harriet was promoting Blood Orange while she was there. And they had um, like big cardboard cutouts of a book in the drinks tent with, with promoters handing out bottles of blood orange juice with the book cover on it. And she was like, mine, it was her mind was blown. She was like, what the hell's happened? 
uh, and that they were promoting it, but it wasn't out then. And that was in the summer of 2018. So I think the book must have come out either late 2018 or early 2019 would be my guess. Oh, Dick, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I can, you know, I can generally place place where I was because beer was involved. And I just think, okay, where was I when I was drinking? Usually beer makes you forget, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's been your favourite first since you became an author? Oh, th there's so many, aren't there? <laughs> That's I why I asked your favourite. I, th I think it's got to be when you when you get your first copy of your first hardback book, I would say, um, because you get, I mean, my, the Man on the Street had a slightly odd start because they decided to do what you call a soft launch, um, which some books get. So they, it was ready quite early, so they decided to put it out in um, ebook uh, and audio book about four or five months early. So it was released in the autumn, just as an ebook and audio book, but with the hardback due out in the March the following year. So my book was kind of kicking around out there for about five months and building up quite a lot of word of mouth. Um, but I didn't have a paper copy of any kind apart from the proofs. Uh, and my proof um, was one of those proofs where they put a particularly special cover on for the proof, but not the real cover of the book. Um, in fact, if you, I'll just go and grab one. Give me a sec. There you go. So you can see that that was the proof cover. So it's only got the name on the side, and uh, you know it's got a kind of interesting cover. But but when you first get the actual real book, I think it's got to be that way because obviously they send them to you in a big box, and you cover. You've seen unboxing videos I'm sure countless times um but yeah it's a bit of a treat when you do that the very first time I think yeah did you see Lee Russell today with a massive knife it's terrifying no, no. Think, just... massive knife opening a box of books jeez unboxing videos I, I mean it seems to have calmed down a bit now but there were people doing professional movies it was like becoming insane you know, there was some production values that you couldn't possibly keep up with. I mean, I do it in my front room mostly with a, you know, an iPhone. I don't even have an iPhone. I have to borrow my wife's iPhone to do it. <laughs> oh, living the high life. You're just ruining <laughs> all of our visions of what you authors get up to and all, all the hikes, you know. Oh, yeah, no, it's quality all the way, Donna. Quality all the way. <laughs> yeah, I see. <laughs> Um, have you ever had any weird or funny feedback from readers? <laughs> I've had lots of funny feedback, I think. I, got, I, I was particularly fond of a, a review on, uh, I think it's Goodreads, it might be Amazon, um, a one-star review for the man on the street where, <laughs> where the, the headline was Thriller? Question <laughs> mark. And then he said a couple of other things, but the first thing he said was, I was bored out of my box reading this, which I, it has just made me laugh every time I've thought about it. And I, <laughs> I'm kind of immune to bad reviews from, from having plays out there for like 12 years. Um, and we wrote, I, I didn't really say, but I mean, it was pretty clear from the pitch for Dirty Dusting that we were writing comedy plays and, um, and we were filling theatres and the audiences were loving them. Um, but of course, every time a national reviewer came to see them. 
they were like, oh, this is not, it's not a proper play. People are laughing and it's comedy. And we got some terrible, I mean, genuinely terrible reviews in the national press. But we were, you know, we were laughing all the way to the bank because the theatres were full out of people and they're coming back time after time after time. Um, but one reviewer said, um, it was in The Guardian, actually. You could probably find it. If you review, if you Google Dirty, Dirty Dusting Guardian Review, he said, the writers set the bar really low yet continually managed to limbo dance underneath it. <laughs> Which I've always quite treasured. I thought at least it was well written um, <laughs> and also funny. There's a lot of merit in that. Yeah, that's great. So either <laughs> of those two, but that, that, that's probably my favourite, but it wasn't for one of the books. <laughs> um, what do you like to do when you're not writing? Um, I love uh, going to see bands. I love music. Um, always been a huge music fan. I mean, obviously, the last two or three, two and a half years have, have made that almost impossible. I, I've, I've managed to see a few in the last six months, maybe two or three. Um, so I've missed that a lot, really. It's, it's my kind of, it's my thing um, still. I like to go and see new bands as well. I'm really thrilled because um, uh, there's a fairly new band out there called She Drew the Gun that I'm a big fan of. And... Um, they have a brilliant song about the homeless community called Poem. And um, I was trying to buy tickets for their latest gig only a, about six months ago. And there was something wrong with the ticket buying thing. The link wouldn't work, you know. And I went on Twitter, on their Twitter feed and just said, guys, can you help me out? I can't seem to buy two tickets. It's literally limiting me to one. And you, you said we could all get two. Uh, and Louise Roach, who's the lead singer-songwriter, actually runs their Twitter account. Uh, and she was instantly on it and sorted it out for me. And I thought, well, as Geordie's up here say, shy bands getting out. So I said, Louise, while I've got you, there's a song of yours I really love. And I'd really love to quote the first three lines as a, an epigraph at the start of a book that I've got coming out next year. And she said, yeah, fill your boots, mate. Just, you know, what's the, you know, well, first of all, she said, what's the book about? And when I told her, she said, yeah, that's great. Just feel free to use it. And normally we have to go through lawyers and, you know, the publishers have to get involved and pay stacks of money to, to use anything from, from anybody's uh, work. Um, and I've been able to use the first three or four lines of, of that song uh, as an epigraph in Dead End Street, which comes out on January the 20th. So I'm really quite excited about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, going, to, going, going to see bands is my number one. I remember seeing you say about that. Actually, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm I'm chuffed a bit with it. I just I keep I, I've got one proof copy, um, which is all I have left at the moment because I haven't actually had my author copies yet, and it's out in a week. Come on, Quirkus, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, so I'm treasuring that, and I open it now and again and go, "Ooh, Louisa Roach wrote this." I'm like <laughs> fanboying massively, going, "Ooh." Uh, do you have a what's your top concert ever? So many. You're going to make me jealous as well now, I think. I could, I could do a top 20. I, <laughs> I'll tell you what I, I, I did love, and this is, is terribly decadent, and, and pre-COVID, I should hasten to add. Um, uh, but the last time there was a, a... I go to Glastonbury pretty much every year. I've been lucky enough to manage to get tickets about six or seven years in a row. Ironically... I hadn't managed to get tickets for the first year of lockdown when it was actually cancelled. Um, but the last time there was a fallow year, some, my wife and I and 
some friends and my daughter and her friends eventually all decided to go to a festival in Budapest called Zaget Festival. It's on an island in the Danube. Um, uh, and yeah, I know it's amazing, but they have their most amazing lineup. I mean, it's exhausting because it's on for a whole week. Glastonbury is tiring, but that's like five days, even if you go for the first two quiet days. But Zaget has a, has big bands on every single day for seven days, and it's boiling hot, and it was exhausting. And we had a great time. The following year, we were on holiday in Italy, and we noticed that. Uh, one of my favourite bands, an American band called The National, were headlining in Zaget at the same festival we'd been at the year before on the Saturday night. And our Italian holiday finished on the Saturday morning. And, and we had a quick look at flights and stuff and thought, actually, we can do this. And we flew to Budapest, went to see The National and flew back to the UK the next day. Um, so I think it would have to be that just for the pure effort that we put in to get there. Um, it was great as well. And it was really odd because it's a really odd mix. It's quite a, a mixed music festival. They will have people like The National who are quite a cool American indie band almost, uh, alongside people like Dua Lipa and, and, uh, and um, Macklemore. So when we got there, Macklemore was the last but one band on, so The National were headlining and Macklemore were, were coming on. And my daughter likes both of them, so it worked. Fine, and, and actually Macklemore was a hoot. And it was absolutely rammed for Macklemore. The whole, you could, the field, I mean, it's a huge place, but you, we were probably 500 yards from the stage and it was still rammed all the way back there. And then he finished and everybody disappeared. All the kids went to see other stuff. <laughs> and there was probably only about 400 people who went to see the National. So I was standing like 10 feet from the stage, really. It's a very weird festival, but uh, but... I recommend it, as long as you can put up with the heat. Anyway, that was a long story about my... Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, who was your first celebrity crush? Oh, Debbie Harry, every time. <laughs> sure, you, you would find a lot of guys my age would, would shout out for her, I think. Yes, very popular choice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The first time I saw Blondie on TV, I was just like staring at the screen screen with my mouth wide open going what <laughs> yeah she's awesome very yeah, cool she was awesome i mean I, I had a bit of a thing for chrissy hind of the pretenders as well she was great cool rock chicks my thing obviously yeah, yeah. <laughs> um what's the strangest or funniest place you've ever woken up Yeah, I'm not sure. My wife might be watching this. I've got to be careful about what I say here. Before I was married, obviously. Um, God, oh, and actually, I know, I know exactly where it is. So, uh, as I said earlier, I was in the Navy for 16 years. And um, uh, I was on a ship that went to Istanbul. And myself uh, and a, a mate of mine, Steve Montgomery, who, who um, brilliantly, I've lost touch with for quite a long time. And then about three or four months ago, he... he he suddenly appeared on social media um, um, saying nice things about my book. And I was like, Steve, wait, so we're back in touch now, which is great. Um, but we had been out for the night in Istanbul, um, finding various bars, which is quite, was quite hard then. We're talking kind of 30 odd years ago. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a mostly Muslim country. So, so there aren't a lot of kind of hidden away bars and stuff 
forced sailors to go and drink in, but we had done okay. And we found a really cool bar uh, towards the end of our night out. And we had to be back at a certain time because um, Istanbul has quite, a, the Bosphorus um, is quite a low tide. So, so big ships can't go alongside there. They have to anchor out in the middle of the river and you get boats to and fro to go alongside in Istanbul. And the last boat back to our ship was at a certain time. And if you missed that, there wasn't another one until the morning. Um, but we were having a nice time. And, um, and, and for some reason, we decided that we would just continue to have a nice time instead of going back for the last boat. So, so and of course, about an hour later, the bar closed, as did almost every other bar in town. Um, so we were kind of a bit stuck and we wandered around and we ended up going to the Hilton Hotel and we kind of wandered in, not to get a room, <laughs> just to try and see if there was a bar open or something. Uh, and first of all, there was a wedding going on. So we get crushed up for a bit and kind of had a bit of fun in there. Uh, and then that finished. So we went down to reception in the Hilton Hotel and asked them what time breakfast was. And the guy was like, oh, it's about seven o'clock. And we were like, oh, fantastic. Thanks. And he said, what are you doing? He said, oh, we'll just wait. And it was about two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and he was, he was like, what? He said, oh, yeah, we've heard great things. We'll, we'll just wait. We'll just sit in the foyer. Thanks. So we just slept in some chairs in the foyer of the Hilton Hotel in Istanbul. And the guy actually woke us up at about quarter to seven and said, oh, breakfast is ready in about 15 minutes. Uh, and we waited until his back was turned and legged it out to get the boat back to the ship. Place. <laughs> so definitely the foyer of the, of the Hilton Hotel in Istanbul. Oh, I imagine you've got lots of stories from that time. <laughs> yeah, I'm keeping it clean. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I was to ask your darling wife what your most annoying habit was, what would she say? Would she need half an hour in a list? <laughs> I, 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 think, I think she would struggle to think of anything, probably. Uh, <laughs> I think she, she probably, oh, I don't know, what would she say? I think she might say, I, I, I tend to be a bit, I tend to dominate the TV button a little bit. Um, not terribly, but, you know, I do, for obvious reasons, I, I do like watching crime shows and, 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 and so does she, to be fair, but now and again, she likes to, <laughs> to change it up a bit. Um, she's desperately trying to persuade me to watch the new series of The Apprentice, for instance. And I, to be fair, I watched the first one, but it was equally as bad as I remembered. I hate everyone on it and it just it's not making it doesn't make me happy I mean there's fun in going they're all morons but I think that's quite limited for a while and and so I think it would probably be that but I need to you know I need to chill out a bit more watching shit television she tend I do all the cooking so she tends to go and watch the really terrible things when I'm cooking for her so she, it's hard for her to complain about all this because she's literally watching shit TV and then getting a nice meal. Yeah, fair so enough. I, so we tend not to clash too much because she gets it all out of the way when I'm cooking. But So I, what is her favourite at the moment? Is that is it called Sunset Strip or something? It's, 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 it's very over-made-up American estate agents selling ridiculously expensive houses. Um, you can see why I don't watch that. Yeah, I couldn't be doing with that. Sounds awful. <laughs> oh my god, how many pets have you got? This is the same. This is Trixie. She's our. Yeah, but what about budgies? You've got budgies. Oh, budgies. Yeah, just yeah, two budgies and this creature. 
All right. Okay. That's not too, that's not excessive then. No, we've had boar in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you said that the book that's coming out, uh, I believe on the 20th of January. (laughs) (laughs) Did I mention the 20th of January? Yeah, you might have done once or twice. Um, It was the last one in this trilogy. So have you got any plans for what you're going to do after that? Yeah, I do. I, I, I was contracted for four books, um, three books in the Jimmy series and then a book to be confirmed at a later date. Um, so I had to kind of pitch to my editor a bit. Um, so the fourth book is going to be a standalone thriller set in rural Northumberland. Uh, and it's about a very small village that is under siege by a group of mercenaries who are looking for a young girl. Uh, and nobody really knows why. And the villagers are coming to her aid and keeping her out of the hands of these vicious mercenaries. That's a really bad pitch and I need to work on the pitch, but it's not going to be out for at least another year. So I've got time for that. A group of mercenaries hold a village at siege while searching for a young girl. That's my pitch at the moment. But it's pretty much, I'm, I'm literally putting the finishing touches to it now. I've got to get it to my editor by the end of March, um, which I will do quite easily. So I'll be out in about a year. It's provisionally called You Can Run. Maybe dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and then do you know what you're going to do after that? I have not the faintest idea. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 like I say, I've got to get this in by the end of March. Uh, I've started to kind of think, but I really don't have a clue. Um, uh, it's going to be interesting. I've got to come up with something. I do, because I, I, I wrote comedy plays for many years, I do have a couple of ideas for, for kind of romantic comedies, <laughs> but I'm not entirely sure that my, either my agent or my editor will be overthrilled if I say, all oh, right, next up is a rom-com. Uh, so we'll see how that plays when I have the conversation. <laughs> I watch this space. I, yeah, I, I may be coming back to you as a romantic comedy writer in a year's time. Oh my god, that'd be awful. Wait a minute, aren't you the? My agent said <laughs> you're the gritty crime guy. <laughs> you can um, moonlight as other things. <laughs> I, I could, and you know, you can use other names. I've never. I've always thought I want my bloody name on it. It's my book. I want somebody else's name on it. I know, I, yeah, see, I'd always want mine. Well, I mean, I hate my name anyway, but if I wrote anything, I'd still want my name on it. I'd want everyone to know that that's me. Yeah, <laughs> of, that. of course, that's, yeah. of course you do. You want all those people who've always talk, told you you were a moron or just didn't like you or whatever. Yeah, exactly. You know, hey, at least I've got a book. Yeah, in your face. I may, you may be right. I may be a moron, but I do have a book. <laughs> yeah, I'm a moron with a book, more than me, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, you know, I've always been a bit, nah, I'm not changing that. Too right. <laughs> but I'm not sure, I'm not sure there are many people out there who've got books that are gritty crime thrillers and romantic comedies and they've written them both in the same name. Answers on a postcard. Yeah, I might have to think about that, I'm sure there are. There's a guy, there's actually, there is a guy called Douglas Kennedy, I don't know if you've come across him. He, he The first two or three books he wrote were very crimey. Um, uh, books and I can't remember the bloody names of them obviously under pressure uh, but then he suddenly started writing kind of epic sagas with with pictures of women lounging around in parlours on the front uh, and did 
did very well with them, I think. So he might be an example that I can quote when I have these conversations. And they'll all go, they'll all go, I've never heard of him. That's why. <laughs> McGarvey Black, she wrote Crime and then she wrote a rom-com oh, called right. The Fussy okay. Virgin. I'm going to write that down. What? Hold on. Let me get a pen on it. What's her name? McGarvey Black. Okay. I need evidence when I pitch this. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure she released them both in the same name, so. Yeah, but did they do very well, don't they? <laughs> I can't give them an example <laughs> and then look it up and they go, oh, it's got six reviews on Amazon. That's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. McGarvey, McGarvey, if you're out there, I hope they did brilliantly because you're going to be an inspiration for me. <laughs> yeah. I keep trying to get her come back for an interview, but she's uh, she's been busy, so. Oh, that's promising if she's busy. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> she lives in Florida, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I think I, I get a sense that the Americans are a bit more flexible about that kind of thing. I think. But she's with a British publisher, so. Oh, okay. She's with Bloodhound, I think, who are now actually sold out to America. But. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, you better informed than me. You're you're more in touch with the industry than I am. Because I speak to thousands of people <laughs> maybe hundreds actually let's not exaggerate but yeah <laughs> um would you like to talk about your podcast uh yeah a little bit because I, I think we i think we made a decision to pause them for a little bit because um obviously we're hoping that things are going to open up a little bit more so so i'm i'm primarily part of a group called the northern crime syndicate seven crime writers all based in the north of england um, and we embraced the Zoom um, style very quickly in lockdown, um, luckily. Uh, so we started doing pretty much a monthly podcast, uh, uh, Zoomcast, really, I guess you'd call them, um, uh, where we did some panel stuff, but we also did some stuff called Whose Crime Is It Anyway, where we basically make up a crime story on the spot in an hour with with suggestions from our chat room, um, uh, which is great fun. We literally just throw stuff out there and they give us stuff back and we we riff on it, really. Uh, and they've been great fun. Um, I, I think we've decided we'd like to do that in real life now, so we're starting to look for places to do that. So watch the space on that. Uh, we also do do um, podcasts as well, which Adam Peacock, one of our group hosts, um, and he's had amazing guests on there. We generally have one, one other Northern Crime Syndicate um, member helping him as a, a, a you know stunning assistant uh but he's had people like ellie griffiths harriet tice has done it um uh, mike craven um so look for northern crime syndicate podcasts uh, and you'll find it on all the usual channels they're great fun yes i've listened to a couple and they're awesome <laughs> yeah they're very good adam's very good at it actually we got him his first at the recent newcastle noir festival one of the one of the few real life festivals that we've actually managed to get on in the last two years was was on a couple of months ago and adam did his first real life hosting a panel um with uh I'm trying to remember who he was oh it was uh, matt uh Wesolowski. um uh, and it was great he's a natural yeah that's good to know because uh somehow i'm going to be doing real life panels in may from doing this so it's nice to know that it's possible to do both. <laughs> practice, practiced on a practice makes perfect. 
<laughs> I can't do much more practice than this. <laughs> Get some friends around and pretend that uh, your panel. And, you know, all my friends are online. Literally, all my friends. Oh, really? are, yeah, so it's a weird world, isn't it? Now, I've, I one of the other groups that I'm part of uh, is the Debut Twenties. Um, all writers from all genres, not just crime, who realise that with their book coming out in 2020, just as all the bookshops were closing, we need some help. So we, we've been incredibly supportive and, uh, and, and proactive in promoting each other's books and stuff. And we have a, we've had a weekly Zoom chat every Friday at five o'clock for, for what I guess now is, is two and a half years or more. It's insane. So I've met all these people online every week for, for a year and a half, two and a half years. And um, we've just started to meet up in real life now. And it's like exactly the same. It's like, wow, I've got, these are friends they're actually friends and you, there's not been any difference between chatting to them online and then you meet them in real life and it's just you just pick up where you left off yeah I've only met a couple of people that I spoke to online and it, it was exactly like that I met about five of them for the first time at the Harrogate Crime Festival in the summer and, and you know we went for dinner and it was just like we've been friends for years it was incredible yeah <laughs> Do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you may be relieved to know that I don't have any more questions for you unless you thought of one of your most fun scenes yet. Oh, fun scenes. Oh, man. I do, there's a scene I quite like. I mean, it's not particularly funny. Um, and it's, it's, I think, the second chapter in One Way Street. Um, set at, it, it's set on um, Christmas Day in the homeless kitchen and um, the fictionalized version of the place I volunteer it's called the people's kitchen in real life I call it the pit stop in the books um, and Jimmy is trying to have a serious conversation whilst all hell is breaking loose around him um, lots of people who maybe had a bit too much to drink before they've gone into the kitchen for, for food people pulling crackers and throwing things all over the place um, and I found that quite a lot of fun to write and also it's the second chapter you know you can pretty much start the book there skip the first chapter that's quite violent but second chapter is a lot of fun fabulous well that's it then that's all i've got for you today unless there's anything else you think i haven't asked you that you want to tell us about uh oh can i give a quick plug for um an event called bay tales i don't know if you've seen there's been a lot of social media chat about it um but the lovely vic watson and simon buick who have for ages been running um, Noir at the Bar, uh, both in real life and on and on Zoom, uh, uh, formed Baytales and they've been doing lots of events online, but they are now having a real life festival um, in Whitley Bay, in the beautiful Northeast of England on the 12th of February. Uh, it's only 30 quid for a, a, the whole day ticket. Um, and there are umpteen fantastic writers there. Anne Cleves is doing it, Vaz Khan is doing it, um, Louise Candlish is there. I'm on a panel with uh, Olivia Kinn and, and a, a new debut writer called Eamon Alonge, who's um, trying to plug his book if I can find it. Yeah, there he is. Eamon Alonge, A Good Day to Die. Fantastic debut. I'm on a panel with him. Um, so come along if you live anywhere near the Northeast, or even if you live in Luton and it's only three hours on the train, come <laughs> along. I was thinking I'll go Google that actually when we finish. So yeah. yeah. February the 12th, all day. And awesome. And you need to get there early because I think I'm on the 10.15 in the morning panel. 
which is going to be a nightmare for me. Yeah, you'll be fine. <laughs> not really. Despite the fact I wake up early, I'm still not really a morning person. I'm at my best in the afternoon. Yeah, no, neither am I, because despite having to start work at six, the first hour of customers get nothing. <laughs> they just get, oh, go I don't think I don't think they want anything, Donna. I think they just want their sausage roll and their cheese pasty and their cup of coffee. That's it, mate. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think you might have mentioned something about a new book coming out soon, maybe. January the 20th, I say. Um, Dead End Street, <laughs> the third and final book in the Jimmy Mullen trilogy. Um, to my great joy is getting some amazing um, pre-release reviews, uh, which I only spotted on Goodreads the other day. Um, they're, they're fantastic. Uh, I'm overjoyed. Uh, so uh, other people say it's great. And just before we go, would you like to tell everyone where they can get your book from and or your books, I should say, and where they can find out more about you if they so desire? Uh, yeah, as usual, available from all good bookshops, preferably used bookshops, guys. They need your support. Um, but it's available from all the usual outlets, really. Um, what was the other thing? Oh, where they can find me. <laughs> I, I'm all over Twitter on a regular basis, um, at Trevor Wood Wright, W-R-I-T-E. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Um, you can find me easily. I, I have an author page, but I barely use it. If, if you send me a friend request to my normal Facebook page and I like the look of you, I'll, you're in. <laughs> you made a mistake with me then, didn't you? <laughs> Um, I generally, if you've got at least two other friends that are connected with me, I'm probably okay with it. Uh, and I do have a website, um, and I can never remember the damn name of it. I think it's www.trevorwoodauthor.co.uk. Uh, but there is a link to it at the top of my Twitter page, so that's the easiest way to find it. Uh, and if you go on there, you get a free short story, uh, which tells the story of where my main character, Jimmy, met his dog which seems an appropriate way um, to finish. Yeah, his, his, dog, his dog's called Dog, by the way, to simplify things. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been oh, a pleasure. It's been a complete pleasure, Donna. Lovely to talk to you again.